0: Welcome to the Halliday Wine Companion Podcast. This is our space to chat about wine without all the fluff, from how to taste and describe it to how to pair it to that dinner party you're hosting next weekend. We'll be chatting to industry professionals from across the country tackling all things wine from a palatable perspective. I'm Tom Carr, your host and I'm part of the team here at Halliday. And this is by the Glass. Oh, thank God it's Friday. I hope you have a glass in front of you. I certainly do. And today we are chatting about all things Grenache. Now, whether you drink wines in which Grenache plays a supporting role, or you purposely seek out a Grenache-only drop one thing is for certain you need to know more about this varietal so who better to join us than the winemaker behind this year's varietal winning Grenache Giles Cook from Thistledown Wines in South Australia and he joins me all the way from the UK please welcome Giles how is life in the Northern Hemisphere
1: hi how you doing uh, well it's um it's probably a little bit different to, to where you guys are at the moment we've um, <laughs> very I shouldn't rub it in but hopefully we I, I, hopefully we've done our lockdowns but yeah we're to, it's uh, it's pretty much back to normal here most restrictions off and uh, we're allowed to go out and drink wine again so <laughs> it's all good
0: but actually it's 7 a.m where Giles is and Giles goes I haven't even had my no <laughs> caffeine yet <laughs>
1: Yeah, I've, got, I've kind of got used to strange starts during lockdown, lots of this kind of stuff. <laughs> and, Charles, uh, congratulations on the win. That's exciting. Uh, yeah, no, it's incredible. We've um, we've been going 10 years and um, over that course of time we've become a bit of a Grenache specialist, slightly obsessed, or more than slightly <laughs> obsessed about it. So, yeah, the, uh, winning the, the varietal award for the variety that is most important to us is is incredible and I, I think it's a really great impetus for a lot of our growers as well so yeah we're, we're, we're delighted with it
0: i know we'll come back to this and we're going to taste it and we're going to talk about it a lot but i want to start with your award-winning grenache it's the 2019 sands of time old vine single vineyard grenache that's a mouthful uh at what point <laughs> at what point in the process did you know that you're on to something special
1: that's a, that's a funny one, because um, I, I don't know whether I'm unusual in terms of winemakers or just the same as everybody else, but you're pretty much racked with doubt about what you've created all the way through the process, right up until the time somebody such as Halliday or somebody else comes along and says, that's bloody good. <laughs> um, all, all the I mean, we're, when with Sands of Time as a single vineyard wine, It's not that we're blending it with anything else, but I am choosing individual barrels. And even through that process, you're saying, is this good enough to be Sands of Time? So I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure that that there was a point until somebody actually validates it. I I knew it was good. I knew it had everything that we look for from this vineyard and from style of the Grenache that we make. But um Yeah, it's not really until I think somebody else comes on and tells you it's great (laughs) that you actually know. And how does it
0: compare to previous years? Like, what do you think gave the 2019 a winning edge? Um,
1: 2019 was um, it was one of the drought years, Um, so yields were pretty small, um, and low yields often help with trying to get more flavor into the into the fruit. Um, so that certainly helped. It was dry. There was low disease pressure so that we had really healthy fruit. Um, so it was a pretty easy year to, to make the wine. But I, I think, if anything, it's we've been working with this vineyard for, since 2013. It's just each year we just get a little bit better at how we kind of transfer the incredible fruit from this vineyard in, into the bottle with as little kind of in the way as possible. We just want A really kind of transparent faithful illustration of what that vineyard does and I think each year we just get a little bit better about conveying that that fruit to to people.
0: And so what actually goes into making a wine of this standard?
1: Great fruit from Mm. an amazing site. We're we're about Grenache um, but we've also we've done a lot about actually focusing in on individual vineyard sites and Also within each individual site, what makes particular parts of a vineyard special. So I think um, you've got to start with incredible fruit from an amazing site. Then uh, there's a bit of work in terms of trying to find out where within that vineyard does the very best fruit come from. Um, And we we started making it back in 2013. And I I think as as we've gone on, we've realised that in some ways, the less we try and do to influence the the style of the wine, the better the wine gets. Um, So everything that we do in the winery now is about just trying to translate that vineyard site into bottle with as little interference as possible. Um, So all the winemaking is quite hands-off. It's all wild ferments, a lot of whole bunch to provide nice structure. Um, I guess like most things, it's just detail. You start with incredible raw ingredients um, and you don't try to mess with them as much as possible. Uh, We've all got a tendency to want to kind of tinker around and play with stuff Mm, because that that puts our fingerprint on a wine, but actually the, the best thing to do is often just to try and do as little as possible.
0: Yeah, that whole minimal intervention which uh, many winemakers are adopting these days. Uh, And and so on Grenache, um, Grenache in Australia has had quite a checkered past, but it's now gaining recognition as a standalone variety. Can you touch on the history of Grenache?
1: Yeah, absolutely. In in terms of history of Grenache in Australia, it, it is pretty checkered. And really until quite recently, it was looked down upon as a, a pretty lowly variety that was only really used for fortifieds or for blending. So, but pre kind of 1950s, 1960s in Australia, it was the most widely planted red variety.
0: Well, that's interesting. Um,
1: uh, yeah, and, and, and that was predominantly because Aussies drank a lot of fortifieds, whether it was kind of sherry or port styles. Yeah. And, and Grenache is brilliant at producing fortified styles because it ripens to quite high potential alcohol levels. So you barely got to fortify it. If you let it hang and hang and get really ripe, you you barely need to do anything to get it fortified. Mm. Um, So so it was the ideal variety um, for doing that. But when fashions changed and everybody started moving to still reds and whites, then Grenache's allure kind of faded and people gradually took the vineyards out. And then in the 1980s, there was a government-sponsored uh, vineyard pool. And because Grenache, a lot of it was old, I mean, we look upon that now as kind of sacrilege, pulling out the old first. Yeah, but because the old is the lowest yielding and it didn't have any value, people just thought, well, well, we'll take that out because it's it's no good. There's no money in it. So they got rid of a lot of vineyards back in the 80s. And, and even when we kind of started around about, 2010, 2011, a lot of the growers that we were talking to were still kind of pulling the hair out. They, they'd done decades of looking after this stuff um, with, with no kind of value attributed to it. Um, a lot of them were getting older. A lot of it was dry grown, bush vine. It's got to be hand pruned, hand picked. And they're just saying, this is too hard. Yeah, um, we, we don't get enough money for it. We're going to pull it out. And um, I think it was, it was around about that time that people like us stepped in and said, we just can't see this happening any longer. This is, this is a huge part of Australia's kind of viticultural history. Yeah. Um, and we need to do something to protect it. What, um, was it. what
0: was it typically blended with when it was blended away?
1: So uh, this kind of alludes to sort of uh, Grenache's history a little bit as well in terms of where it kept where it originally came from. So it originally came from uh, Northern Spain in Aragon, but a a lot of people would be more familiar with it, probably in blends from Southern Rhone, like Côte de Rhone or Chateauneuf-du-Pape. So it was uh, traditionally blended with Grenache, some Syrah, some Mourvedre, which in Australia is known as Mataro, um, and then a whole host of other varieties. Uh, If you were in Rioja in Spain, uh, Garnaccio would have been blended with Tempranillo and Graciano, and perhaps some Mathuelo. So it was, it was always a kind of uh, a big part of those blends, but never the one that got a lot of attention.
0: Sounds like it was always the bridesmaid and never the bride.
1: Absolutely. yeah, Yeah. And that, as a result of that, people just kind of took it for granted.
0: Well, thank gosh, people like you have stepped in
1: and given it <laughs> given it the center stage.
0: Uh,
1: how We touched on this before, but how
0: versatile is the varietal?
1: I, d- I think it's incredibly versatile, both in terms of the, the wines that you can make from it, um, but also the way that you can use it, drink it, drink it with food. Um, so in terms of uh, the, the styles that you can make, a, a lot of areas, and I guess this is part of the problem for Grenache in terms of its perception, um, was that if, if you look at um, a lot of areas in northern Spain um, where it originated from, uh, a lot of it was used for producing rosé or rosado, and, and those were just simple quaffing styles of wines which didn't have any ageing ability or, or any particular value to them. Um, but it still makes some of the best rosé wines in the world. So if, if you look at all of the, the, the pale Provence rosés that people are spending huge amounts of money on at the moment, a lot of them are Grenache based. Yeah, right. Um, it's got quite thin. It's got because it's got quite thin skins. Um, it doesn't give a lot of colour to the juice early on, so it's, it's ideal for making um, rosé. So it does rosé brilliantly, and uh, we do one, and a lot of other people in in Oz do um, a lot of good Grenache rosé now. Mm. Um, It it would traditionally have been also used for making much bigger, heavier styles, and certainly Australia's fairly recent past was trying to make Grenache kind of in the mould of Shiraz, so leaving it to hang a long time, getting it really right, putting it in oak. Um, and making something which is maybe not the best um, <laughs> in terms of showing off what it can actually do. So it can, if pushed, but but what it does brilliantly Anna, and where we're only really finding out now is doing those kind of more medium-bodied aromatic styles that are incredibly versatile in terms of, you know, you, like Pinot, you, you can have them served at kind of room temperature and they're, they're warming and they're welcoming and comforting when it's cold. But also you can stick them in the fridge. You can have them straight out of the fridge. Um, and ideal kind of coffers for barbecues as well. So um, I, I think it's incredibly versatile. It's just that until fairly recently, people were a bit one-tracked. It was either kind of rosé or it was bigger, heavier styles.
0: Yeah, and on that... And, I mean, you've already touched on it briefly, but how do you think Grenache is perceived in society?
1: Uh, well, it used to uh, – well, some people used to kind of kind of blue-collar Pinot. So it was kind <laughs> of like a cheap version of Pinot. Um, my, my preferred terminology is um, Grenache delivers what Pinot can only promise. Oh, <laughs> that's quite and, uh, cool. And uh, – <laughs> uh, yeah, it is a bit of a call. It won't be it won't be very popular with my friends in the Adelaide Hills. But um, but yeah, that's a, that's a little bit of a quick back about it. Um, and until recently, I think it was perceived as more of a kind of fun variety. It wasn't particularly serious. Uh, it was there as a kind of bulking out variety for blends that um, they, they can make some pretty tasty wines, but they weren't going to be taken too seriously. But I, th- I think what's happening now, and pe- people like ourselves and um, some of the other people at the forefront of um, Grenache are now showing that it's actually an incredible vehicle for showing these beautiful sites. If you produce it the right way, you don't pick it too late, you don't use too much oak, then the, the wines are just absolutely beautiful, textural layer. They're, they're every, everything that we kind of set up. To do originally, and it's taken a while. I mean, we've been pushing Grenache obsessively for the last ten years. Uh, a lot of the time, when people didn't even want to listen, um, <laughs> and um, it's only now that I think people are realising that actually Grenache is capable of making world-class wines. It's kind of ironic because there the are wines out there, things like Château Rias and Château which would sell for probably about I don't know thousand bucks a bottle, something wow, like that.
0: Wow, and they're Grenache. Um,
1: and, that's and that's 100% Grenache. So the, there have been world-class Grenaches around for a long time, but I think people are only just waking up out uh, to the potential of it.
0: But that's what I love about wine is that I, I it's like fashion. Things flow in and flow out, yep. and I feel like Grenache is on the cusp yep. of having its moment. And you'll be at the forefront of that, Charles. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, I damn well hope so. <laughs> uh,
0: so let's talk about wine making, right, with Grenache. What sort of stylistic changes have you noticed over the years?
1: Uh, well, I, I kind of touched on it in the past. I think one of the big problems that we had to overcome when we were talking to all of those growers that were saying, we're going to pull this stuff out, uh, there's no money in it. One of the things that we had to do was to try and change people's perceptions and actually get them drinking it and enjoying it. And and not to put too fine a point on it, I I tasted a lot of the wines that were being made 15, 20 years ago, uh, and they weren't that great. Um, Grenache was kind of like the the poor relation. So they they picked Pinot, they picked Shiraz, they picked Cabernet first, got them into the winery and they kind of, uh, Grenache will hang on. They'll be there at the end. Um, but what came in was kind of just cooked fruit. Um, so a lot of work needed to be done to that, to turn it into something more palatable. Um, the, the wines were too heavy, they were too rich, and that's not a position that Grenache likes to be in. It doesn't have to be pushed. So what we needed to do to try and convince the growers to keep the grapes in the ground or the vines in the ground was to make something that people actually wanted to drink and come back for more of if people do that, then we'll be able to pay the growers a little bit more because we'll have made a bit of money selling some wine Um, and they'll keep the vines in the ground. And that was the first kind of thing we needed to do. And so we we had to think about how you do that for us. So one of them was trying to pick earlier. Um, So not waiting until you're tasting jam on the vine. Um, It was to, to really pick kind of, we have a phrase, picking on the way up rather than the way down. So, so we go in a little bit earlier. I'm not looking for huge amounts of ripeness um, uh, in the grapes when I taste them. I'm looking just for signs that they're beginning to get up there. Um, and that means by the time we get that fruit into the winery, it's just reaching its peak rather than having kind of gone over the top. And then you have to do all sorts of adjustments to uh, to make it right. So that, that was one of the key things, changing people's perceptions about picking times. Yeah. Most people in in australia and around the world think of grenache as kind of a late ripening variety we've had to change a lot of that in australia the problem is not ripeness it's about trying to restrain that ripeness so i guess that's what we're doing earlier picking more whole bunch to give it a bit more structure yeah and uh don't use too much oak and we've brought in a lot of concrete as well in the ferments which really helps try and keep that freshness
0: and what's the typical aging capability of a Grenache, or, or is it a wine that we should just enjoy young?
1: <laughs> oh, you're pretty um, if, 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 you if you want to keep uh, my growers happy, drink it young. Drink, drink it within about 20, 20, 24 hours of buying the bottle. Um, th- that, that keeps uh, other keep the accountant happy as well. Um, but we we make we make so many different grenaches and some of them are absolutely destined for that purpose. Yeah, you want to buy it, maybe chill it down a bit, smash it, enjoy it. Smash and that's it. that's that's, <laughs> what, that, that, that's what its purpose. A is good old quaffer, a good old quaffer. But but good, I mean tasty, yeah. adaptable, versatile, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I mean, they'll they'll keep their age as well, but um, that's what their purpose is. Whereas things like Sands of Time, I mean, you're tasting the the 19, uh, which is still pretty young by anyone's consideration, but it's beautiful at the moment. We we want most of our wines to be really attractive and open pretty much right from the start, Mm. but with a structure that will reward maybe five to 10 years. But the difficulty we've got at the moment and most people have got is that style of Grenache winemaking has changed so much, really, just in the last five to 10 years, that we're, we're all sitting on lots of wines that we're not quite sure how they're going to age at the moment. We're all pretty convinced that they'll age an awful lot better than wines that were made previously, because that natural structure is there. Mm, 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 mm. Um, but I, c- I couldn't hand on heart and say, I definitely know it's going to be much better in 10 years' time. My my gut would say that these are wines that they will get better and better for kind of five to six years, the plateau for two or three years, and then you'll begin to see that fruit kind of tail off a little bit after that. And some people love that. Um, Personally, I still want to taste the fruit. I still want to taste the detail of where that wine came from.
0: And, well, let's actually just taste the wine, shall we? Because, I mean, you know. It's seven a.m. where you are.
1: (laughs) Somewhere. uh, Come come on now! It's it's getting towards eight o'clock in the morning now. So, I I, I think that's just about acceptable. Well, it is in Scotland.
0: This is actually bringing a whole new like meaning to it. I'm having a glass, and I'm like, "Well, you know what? Twelve o'clock somewhere in the world, or in this case, eight a.m."
1: Yeah. Well this uh, uh I'll, I'll, I'll pretend i'm spitting <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, so
0: what are the typical style characteristics of this 19.
1: so the thing that comes through most strongly irrespective of, of vintage um so the the first vintage of sands times 2017 we've been working with the vineyard since 13. There, there's huge differences from year to year in terms of picking times. So um, from 15 to 16, there's six weeks difference in picking time, which is an incredible amount of time for there to be a difference. So there are differences from vintage to vintage, but though there is a particular characteristic of, of this vineyard, which is why we make a single vineyard wine from it. Um, so, I mean, on, on the nose, I always get... Um, it's hugely aromatic um you've it's more kind of down that red fruit spectrum
0: yeah
1: um i i get a kind of uh, some kind of wild raspberries some cranberry and um, it's those fresher fruits um right it's not kind of down the blackcurrant dark fruit spectrum it's more it's more red fruit yeah um, but then you've got this beautiful kind of overlay of spice um wild herbs um we get a sort of wild rosemary characteristic on the nose and i, I just find it really evocative I'd, i i can't help but smell this wine and start thinking of kind of moroccan foods and this kind oh. of stuff The sort of r- r- razzella, hanoot, that kind of warm spice rose petals all, all of that kind of stuff going on so d- we, we want all of our wines to be immediately very aromatic and really expressive of their sight and it's it's auto suggestion I'm sure but th- this comes from very old vines and sandy soils and I can almost sense that sort of the sandiness the the brightness and the florality of it so
0: and as I as I try this wine what I love about it is that immediately it's approachable I mean I yeah. cracked the bottle I didn't even have it airing I just had a mouthful and it was so approachable from the get-go
1: yeah, and I think that's, um, that's a great thing, but it's also quite a deceptive thing. I, I think some t- because we're not, we're not that obsessed about colour and concentration, we're, it's more about aromatics, texture and length for us. And I think sometimes people can look at Grenache and they go, oh, it's a bit pale. Uh, it's not as full-bodied as I like, but you, you, you've got that immediately kind of soaring aromatics. Then on the palate, you've just got layer after layer of texture and more and more flavors come through, and it, and it builds. So it gives this impression of kind of lightness and transparency, but actually, it's got huge amounts of depth, there huge as length. Well. that's what I love about Grenache.
0: Yeah, huge length as well. You know, like I, yeah. I was even just counting the number of seconds in my head as you were talking. I was like, I'm still getting everything. They're you know, uh, like, waiting for me to finish. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, got, it's got so it, – it, it, it does. It has beautiful length and plenty of complexity, but, it, but it's strangely just really approachable from the get-go. It's, it's yeah, rather it's, yummy. Uh, <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, it's way too difficult to drink. It's, uh, way too easy to drink, isn't it? <laughs> uh,
0: yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so how should this particular wine be served?
1: I'm almost tempted to say any way you like, because <laughs> I'm not. I, I'm, I, I'm not pretentious at all about how people enjoy wines. Um, well, one of the things I love, and I've spent a lot of time in the UK as well, and tried to encourage them to be a little bit more like Australian wine drinking culture, is that kind of informality of fine wine that is brilliant in Australia. Um, there's so many incredible wines made across all price spectrums and styles spectrums. Um, and there's just such an informal approach to, to, to drinking them and enjoying them. And there's not quite that same kind of reverence that's given in other parts of the world. And I, I love the fact that we can produce something which is in by global standards, tiny, tiny quantities from an amazing site but actually you can sit around and you can just enjoy it with friends and not take it too seriously.
0: But what are we talking uh, talking like glassware, temperature? Like is there any sort of, you know, tips or tricks on how we should enjoy a Grenache the best we can?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if you're talking about this wine in particular, I mean, generally for more kind of uh, everyday drinking Grenaches, I'd have them out of a tumbler and I'd make sure the wine was served quite cool. Um, Grenache generally tends towards slightly higher alcohol than some varieties, so serving it cool certainly helps in that respect, but I I think in many ways it helps to bring out all that kind of sappy deliciousness with Grenache, which which makes it uh, so delicious. Um, For this wine in particular, I I think because it's got so much complexity and so many layers, I think you want to serve it just below kind of room temperature. Don't serve it too warm. All you're going to get is kind of alcohol coming out of the glass. Um, and for that reason as well, don't put it in too big a glass um, because then you just get evaporation of alcohol. All you're going to smell is that. So um, and, and don't fill it up too high so you can give a good s- swirl around a- as well. It's something with a relatively wide bowl but a narrow bowl top to the glass um, so that it focuses in all of those aromas mm. um, into your nose when you're, when you're smelling it. And, and because that's one of the beauties of Grenache is that kind of aromatic profile, yeah. um, you want to make sure you get as much of that as possible. And
0: how about, you touched on this before when you got me thinking about Moroccan dishes. <laughs> 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 Let's just chat about food pairings. Yeah. What would you serve it with?
1: Oh, so I think I, I I can't make Grenache or even taste fruit in the vineyard without thinking about what wine that's going to make and then what food that's going to go with. My, my kind of life journey started out from food first and came into wine. Um, so everything is about food. And I used to travel the world buying wine and was very lucky to spend an awful lot of time in Spain, which was kind of my first love in terms of food and wine. Um, And so a lot of my kind of food obsessions stem from from Spain and from kind of North Africa and um, those kinds of areas. I guess my go-to for Grenache, as as easy as kind of, as I mentioned before, kind of marinated shoulder of lambs with Moroccan spices. I think what you want to get as much as possible is... um, a marriage between that kind of the warm spices in Grenache and and the, the the complexity of the spices in the food. So I think anything kind of North African, Middle Eastern works brilliantly, that combination of, of spice and a little bit of kind of dried fruit character, whether it's uh, pomegranate seeds or cranberry or anything like that works in, incredibly well.
0: And Giles, talking about Grenache, right, and serving it with food at home, where are you enjoying Grenache um, from at the moment? Like outside of your own, obviously, which is what you drink most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: yeah I, uh, I, I, well, I'm, I'm glad to say I still do drink quite a lot of my own stuff. Um, where else? So, Quite quite often people say, so, so the style of wines that you're making in McLaren Vale, what, what are they modelled on? Is it is it on Priorat in Spain or is it in Rioja or is it... Uh, Southern Rhone and and quite often what I actually say is that there's an area in the hills around Madrid in um, Spain um, called the Grados Mountains and they make a style of Grenache which I don't think is a million miles away from what we and a few others are trying to do in McLaren Vale the territory is quite different the altitude is a little bit different but they're making incredibly kind of Uh, aromatic, Pinot-like Grenaches with huge amounts of just texture rather than colour or concentration. Um, And I I love those wines. and They're brilliant. I can't get away from Rioja. Um, I I make Grenache in Rioja as well, when I can actually get to Spain. And um, I I love those wines as well so uh, much. The reason I kind of set off on this Grenache Journey was um, I, I used to buy a, a lot of wine in Spain, and quite often, um, one particular area called Navarra, which is close to Rioja. Um, and I would go there immediately after vintage, and they'd have huge vats, huge concrete vats um, of really, really young ganache. And you taste it, and you just go, Bloody hell, that's absolutely delicious. And it was simple wine, not meant to be anything special, but it was just utterly delicious. Um, so that that was kind of the inspiration for it so I still drink a lot of stuff from Spain Spain. it's the home of Garnacha Um, like like, um, what's happened in Australia the vast areas of Spain where it's been neglected it's had little value and a similar thing is happening people are going back into those areas quite often from outside and and demonstrating that there's incredible value there um, and they've got an amazing resource So yeah, so Spain, certainly. Um, There's some amazing stuff out Southern France as well. And in Priorat, there's some incredible stuff coming from Western Australia as well now. Uh, The guys at Swinney are doing some incredible stuff. And uh, I'm sure some of the other states will be thinking about what they can do with the variety as well as everywhere gets a little bit warmer and what were previously cooler climates become more appropriate for Grenache. So that's another thing I think we're going to see is that um, Grenache's versatility and how it adapts to climate change um, makes it a much better variety, much better suited variety Mm. for many areas, particularly in South Australia, um, than some of the more French-influenced varieties such as Shiraz and Cabernet.
0: You've just made me completely rethink Grenache. (gasps) And obviously, <laughs> drinking this, I'm like, okay, I'm converted, but I'm certainly not going <laughs> to drink that every night of the week. But it's, you know, well, I could, but I've uh, uh, we, we, got broke. a few
1: others that are slightly more accessible because
0: <laughs> it's, it's, it's bloody nice. Uh, Giles, thanks for chatting to us about all things Grenache today. It's actually been um, one of the more interesting episodes. It's yeah, really, really, really interesting varietal.
1: Uh, it's an uh, absolute pleasure, as you can tell. I love talking about it. <laughs>
0: No, thank you so much for joining us on the show uh, and for everyone at home, uh, please buy yourself a bottle of grenache next time you're out and uh, join the movement. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next week on By the Glass.